start over? <laughs> <laughs> Sunday service here at Ananda Village. We're very happy to have all of you here, no matter where you're coming from, <laughs> and on the internet as well. I'd like to begin by reading from Rays of the One Night, based on commentaries of the Bible and Bhagavad Gita, and based on the teaching written by Swami Kriyananda, and based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. This is week number 22, The Inner Kingdom. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. Most people imagine that the inner kingdom, as Jesus described it, lacks the fascination they attribute to sense life. The bright lights, the diverse attractions, the joys and laughter. Little do they realize what a vast universe exists in their own selves. There are many passages in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible that describe aspects of this inner kingdom. In the book of Genesis we read, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. 
and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2, 8 and 9. This garden was in no earthly place. It exists even now in the very self of every human being. The legend of Adam and Eve is allegorical. It describes how the first human beings dissipated their spiritual energy centered in the spine. The spine is the channel through which flows the river of the river of baptism and of spiritual life. The Bhagavad Gita tells us the wise speak of an eternal Ashvata tree with its its roots above and its branches below. Fifteen one. The tree of life spoken of also in Genesis, is the spine. Its roots are above in the brain's energy. Its branches are the outward-spreading nervous system. When the sap, which is to say the energy, flows downward, the consciousness is drawn into delusion. On the other hand, when the energy is drawn upward in deep meditation, the consciousness is drawn toward its eternal source, God, and is at last united with him. Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita therefore urges his chief disciple, Arjuna, to embrace the yoga science, the path of meditation. The yogi, he says, is greater than the ascetic, greater even than the followers of the paths of wisdom, jnana yoga, or of action, karma yoga. Be thou, O Arjuna, a yogi. For those who would find the divine truth, Krishna gives this description of the yogi. Steadfast a lamp burns, sheltered from the wind. Steadfastly meditating, solitary, such is the likeness of the yogi's mind. Shut from sense storms and burning bright to heaven. Wherever you are, whatever your outward beliefs and observances, Seek God in the silence of your soul. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. that don't know who we are. My name is Nayaswami Pranaba and this is Nayaswami Parvati. I'd like to read to you from Yogananda's book of Answered Prayers, Whispers from Eternity. Open my inner eye, O fountain of light, that I may behold thee in the dance of the myriad-hued atoms. Burst open the doors of space that I may, be, that I may see thee behind the swirling mists of material illusion. Behind the walls of brilliant cosmic rays, thou art hiding. Open every portal in nature that I may see thee everywhere. There's a story about um, a man getting off a train at the train station being very upset and complaining to the porter nearby saying, what fool built this railway station two miles away from the town. And the railway porter says to him, well, I think they thought it would be good to have it by the tracks.
in a sense, that's the way that we relate to life, is that uh, the town, in this sense, is the worldly distractions, the things that constantly want to pull us away. But our heart and soul is the railway station that needs to be near the river of life, the, those railway tracks in this story. And when we think about it, that the essence of who we are, in one way of looking at it, is really spirituality, that the heart and soul of who we are is that spirituality. The expression of that spirituality is religion. And so religion is a way that clothes and takes into the world around us uh, our depth of spirituality. The challenge that comes to us is when that religion becomes definitive as to who we are in our spirituality. That it becomes the box that creates very tight corners and quarters for us to really live our spiritual life. And that can happen easily if we really don't find more and more the true inner experience of the inner kingdom. Without that, we'll always be tossed in the waves of the distractions, even spiritually, of what seems to be the right thing to do in religion. But, you know, when you really place that emphasis more on who you are, being in that train station by the tracks, then much more can happen, and then that inner kingdom becomes much more real. It doesn't remain this vague sense that's esoterica. Uh, it becomes the reality of our practical experience. I know when I first started to meditate, I remember the very first day uh, when I was instructed to meditate. It wasn't the techniques that Yogananda brought, but another similar approach to meditation. I remember being instructed in it and then being left alone to meditate. And I had this dual uh, impression that was very, very clear. I can remember it almost uh, tangibly right now. Uh, this was in 1973, the spring of 1973. But I remember feeling, what is this? I mean, is this real? Really, I mean, is this really going to work? And another part of me, coinciding with that, felt, this is it. This is really the adventure opening up. Let's get on with it. And it was interesting to have that dichotomy of focus that was coming from that experience. But I knew from somewhere deep within intuitively that this really was the opening of the door to this adventure of the inner kingdom. And from that day on, I've meditated every day. And I remember going to group meditations almost every week because I just knew this was it. This was the pinnacle of where I wanted to be at that point in my life was that meditation was the focal point. And I was working full-time, I was going to night school, I was doing a lot of extra things, um, but that was the pinnacle, twice a day, that was it. Nothing interfered with that. Because intuitively I knew this would take me where I really wanted to be in this lifetime. Now, it felt like there was a lot of momentum with that, but immediately there were the, the pulls and pushes of the world around me. I was living at that point with my parents and ended up going to university shortly after I learned to meditate. Um, and so I was squeezed into my little bedroom and luckily my mother was on my side and she would get my father to be quiet when I would meditate. But, but even my friends just thought I was just stepping off the deep end. Uh, you know, we would get together up until that point every week uh, the rituals of what happens when you party week in, week in after another, 
that was really what was happening for me up until that point of that time when I learned to meditate. Now, what increasingly started to happen was the pull of Paramahansa Yogananda in my life. Um, a lot of the friends that I started to become more aware of that were more spiritually inclined had read the autobiography of Yogi. And um, then one of my brothers had read it. And so I felt this influence drawing me into that experience. And, and the other books that I would read, like the American Ram Dass's book, Be Here Now, talked a lot about what was in the autobiography of Yogi. So I could feel that draw, and it was just like a dear calling to me. And so I remember, uh, and I didn't know about Ananda at that time. I didn't know about SRF really. I'd read the book probably four times and didn't know anything about anything that was organized. It was like a, a veil had been put around me so that I wasn't drawn organizationally right away. At least that's how I understood it. But once I started to go in that direction, that I remember the day I stopped my first meditation technique, and I'd been doing it for almost five years every day, twice a year, uh, twice a day, uh, to doing what Master Paramahansa Yogananda recommended, just visualizing the expanding sphere of light and joy. And so for four months, that was my meditation technique, morning and evening. That was it. I was just doing that and just feeling that real connection because I never really tuned into that the spiritual eye, that that was real. It just felt more of a metaphor of something as an image more. But doing that twice a day for at least 30-some, 40 minutes of going into that spiritual eye, and that was the only technique, um, that after four months, then when I learned Hong Saw, it was amazing. It was like welcoming a dear old friend back into the home. It felt like I was embracing that experience rather than learning something. Um, because using that, that combination that Hong Saw gives us um, of bringing the mental gaze up to the spiritual eye by focusing on the breath without controlling it, and then adding the vibration of consciousness of the breath itself, Hong Saw. It just felt like everything integrated. It was like if you, you know about carpentry, that uh, a finesse joint, rather than just being butted up, uh, that often they'll use dovetail. So there's uh, wings on one hand, wings on the other, and the two pieces come together and they fit together and they call it a dovetail. That's exactly what I felt in my experience, that I sense ever more completely this experience of somewhat of that inner kingdom. It wasn't that I was just appreciating it. It was like I was feeling that experience very rich in my own life. And then after a few years, I found out about Ananda, Ananda Village. And that was really all that existed of Ananda at that point was Ananda Village. And I came here after a long 64-hour Greyhound bus trip. Actually, I only got as far as Auburn, and the bus connection wasn't there. So I had to hitchhike from Auburn out here. And it was a very, very hot July, dusty day. And, um, you know, the entrance to Ananda uh, today isn't where it was back then. It was, if you went further around that curve, there's a little road there. That's, that used to be the entrance, and some 20 years ago or so we changed it. But that entrance to Ananda now 
was there was just a short paved part, or actually it was gravel road, um, and there was a program called the Apprenticeship Program that was housed out of the farmhouse that used to be right at the entrance. What we have now, there was a farmhouse and more of a fence, and the grass actually was grass instead of wild weeds. Um, but I remember, and it was, I came, and it was late afternoon, and I walked, got a ride to that point, walked onto the property, and there were 60 people on the lawn, which is no longer lawn, as I said, doing energization because that's where the sodians were held, right there on Tylerfoot Road. And I remember walking on the property and feeling, this is my spiritual home. Without hesitation, without reservation, I felt this very deep connection. This is my spiritual home. I also knew that it wasn't necessarily my physical home all the time, although I deeply appreciated being on this property. But I felt more importantly that that inner kingdom that I was starting to really feel as my own was going to be nurtured by the satsang of gurubhais, other truth seekers that were really diving deeper and deeper into this path with our great line of gurus and with our, our, our just deep connection with Paramahansa Yogananda. And so in that I started to feel more and more that it wasn't about a religion that I believed in. I sensed much more this inner experience of spirituality and really tried to live much more in that experience. Not only just wanting to receive. I learned quickly uh, from Swami Kriyananda Satsangs and from the great souls that uh, were already here that it wasn't just about receiving to tune into that river of life, that inner kingdom. It was offering as well. It was giving. It was allowing myself to be much more connected by my energy being offered when Parvati was describing the purification ceremony earlier, she was making this point, which is an important emphasis, that in that purification ceremony, that the aspirant coming up uh, for the blessing says, I seek purification by the grace of God. There has to be that investment of our willingness to really allow that reception of the blessing to come. Certainly, many of us have felt the blessings just come out of nowhere. There's a grace that just comes. But, you know, truthfully, it's, it's happening because we've really given our energy to the divine in one way or the other. Perhaps it could be in service. It could be in deep meditation. It could be in deep devotion. But when we allow ourselves to be in that experience, then the inner kingdom starts to unfold. There's a reality of that. And so the two chants that we chanted this morning... I wasn't sure which chants I was going to chant. Um, There were a number of ones, and I was still going to tie them in somehow, but then I realized these are the two chants that I really wanted to focus on. That first one, uh, listen, listen, listen to my heart's song, I will never forget thee, I will never forsake thee, is that part of us that's offering our devotion, that's saying to the divine, I will be yours, I will never let you go, I will never let the gaze of my internal perception ever fall below the horizon of thy presence. And we're in that experience when we say to God, listen to my heart, listen to my offering to you. And what we do there, we envelop ourselves in this divine embrace. It's like the sweetness of that presence starts to... um, take away the corrosion 
of the ego's hold on us. You know, and that's an interesting way to look at the ego, that it's corroding <laughs> our true nature, that it's adding on, um, it's producing rust, uh, that if you, you know, if you see old mirrors sometimes, that you'll have rust that's over them. And what we want to do is bring back that pure reflection of the divine by removing that rust of the ego. Because the ego will be corrosive in that way for our true, true soul nature. And so, to nurture that, because this topic today, one can be seen from the novice perspective of, uh, of getting introduced to some of these ideas. But many of us here in this room, and many of you on the internet, uh, have heard some of these teachings before. So it's not so much that I want to emphasize the wow part of, wow, you can really go into your inner kingdom. What's important for us, for most of us, is day by day, how do we approach this? So this first chant, listen, 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 gives us that very real experience of opening up so that we don't lose sight of that it's just us doing it, but rather that we're offering ourselves. Because divine grace is hovering, surrounding us. It's always there. What's missing is that we're open enough as an instrument, as a channel, to receive that, that it becomes real, that it becomes transformative. When we endeavor to open our hearts purely with love, then divine love saturates us. And then in that saturation of divine love, we nurture more of that love even in a human way. So even that town that's two miles away, that may be the symbol, that uh, uh, metaphor for the distractions of the ego, becomes more enlivened by our experience. It's like that in Assisi. If you've been to Assisi, that if you've taken the train, it actually comes down into the town called Santa Maria della Angeli, which is where the Porciuncola, the famous little chapel that was the headquarters for the Franciscans with uh, Francis. Well, Assisi's way up on that hillside that you look at when you come in on the train. And uh, you'd think, and I remember actually thinking this, that, wow, that's a long way away. How do we get up there? You know? And so you arrange those rides. But once you get into that town of Assisi itself, it is pure ecstasy if you're open. I mean, it's amazing how you can feel the vibration and magnetism of Francis and Claire. It's no longer that you have this idealistic perspective of it. You feel it. You're touched by it. And so when we open ourselves with that devotion and that divine love starts to become more our reality, then even the world around us becomes more connected in that divine way. And this is where the second chant comes in. You know, we don't chant that chant a whole lot, do we? Especially at Sunday service, perhaps. Uh, maybe for Korea initiations we have it, because it relates more to that great power. But it's pertinent to all of us in this setting as well. That, and I was just reading something of Yogananda's yesterday that said, "Get," and you can feel him saying this strongly, Get into the science of meditation now. Now, remember, we've already set the tone of devotion, so it's not as if we have suddenly evacuated from devotion. But if you add this element of tuning into that river of life, which is this focus in the chant of pranayam, control the little pranayam, become all-pervading pranayam, you won't have to fear anything anymore. That's the promise. That's the promise we have when we align ourselves with the prana inside. 
And yesterday at the talk that Swami Kriyananda gave as a part of the Yugas conference, his, his topic, I think, was um, the spiritual quest in the uh, Dwapara Yuga. That he talked about this, that, that, that now we're in an age when we're much more enlivened to feel that pranayama is our religion. You know, and then more important than pranayama be our religion. What's the second line in that? Yeah, pranayama be, thy, be thou our salvation. That's really what we're needing to hook up on. That's the star that we want to catch and ride with. And that is the reality for us because that's the inner kingdom. And we start to open up more and more. And so in my own personal experience, uh, that through the years of then taking that deep understanding of Hong Sa as my own experience and then adding to that these experiences of pranayama, one with the energization exercises, which again is a way to focus on the prana and being in control of it. You know, often we can mistakenly assume that the importance of the energization exercises is simply to be energized because it's a very, very important part of it. But you know, thinking about the whole picture in a deeper and broader way, it isn't quite the most important point. And I remember somewhere Yogananda says that really the important point is that we start to identify more and more that we are that divine energy. So sure, we get energized, but we need to be that, taking that subtle step where we really feel we are that energy. We're not just energizing. We are that experience of energy. And then with the OM technique, uh, and again, for some people, it comes as an easy attunement thing. And for others like me, it just felt like, what do I do actually in this technique? And so I won't go into the technique, obviously, but that, that, that sense of being immersed into the power of prana as OM, as the cosmic world, as it says in the chant. Uh, pranayam is beloved God. Pranayam is creator Lord. Pranayam is the cosmic world. And that's in Om, that prana is enlivened through the vibration of Om. And so we feel that connection that way. And then, of course, through Kriya Yoga, the highest technique that we work with, we feel more directly that river of life. We're no longer even in the station. We're on the tracks. We're moving into the depths of who we are, not only just as who we are individually, that happens, but who we are as a child of the divine. And we feel that. We feel it more and more. And that grace really is the power that's behind uh, what's happening for us spiritually, that we're nurtured as we grow, but then we also become the instruments of that nurturing to the world around us. And that's why that last phrase in the chant, desire my great enemy, that control the little pranayam, become all-pervading pranayam, you won't have to fear anything anymore. When we evaporate that sense of separation, there cannot be fear. There's nothing left but the divine presence. And in that divine presence, we embrace the world around us. And in this age of Dwapara Yuga, this age of energy, that really is re- the, the emphasis that Yogananda gave to us to seek with that clarity of purpose and that true depth of experience the inner kingdom and then to become that pure instrument that shines with that 
purity of that inner kingdom into the world around us. So let these chants maybe for this next week resonate more and more with you. Take them into a deeper experience. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. Control the little pranayam. Become all-pervading pranayam. You won't have to fear anything anymore.